it's live. Hi, everybody. How are you doing? Welcome back to the Morality of Everyday Things. Sorry for the short, extended break between Christmas and then a, a trip. Actually, no, we recorded after Christmas. We recorded since yeah. Christmas. Um, we, we went to Mexico. This we is the real reason. Si, si. Y uh, ahora <laughs> puedo uh, hablar un poco español. Si. And uh, the rest of the podcast is going to be in Spanish as well. So, si. Uh, <laughs> mi español uh, no es... Uh, uh, how do you say good enough? Bueno. Uh, no, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to say enough. Jesus, that's not making my point. Pero uh, no puedo hablar de filosofía en español yet. Todavía. Mm. Um, so... Uh, in welcome. English, yeah, um, welcome back. Today's episode is going to be on quite a big question. Mm, is mm. God a good thing? Yeah, actually, for those set, set the scene, Jacob and I were riding through the mountains of Oaxaca in the back of a, <laughs> a very windy uh, bus. And we, we were it was a really uncomfortable was, ride in yeah. many ways. But then also, it was beautiful. it was quite nice. It was beautiful. Yeah. It and started we uncomfortable. It was sweaty. Oh, yeah. And it was very full. But then fortunately, people got out before we really got into the mountains. Before taking mushrooms, we said, <laughs> is god a good thing uh no we were discussing topics and uh, a couple things one uh, we're going to start doing slightly longer episodes and then breaking them into parts this is partially because it lets us flesh out topics more and partially because it means that we don't have to record quite as often mm-hmm. uh, which, <laughs> which sounds lazy, but, yeah. <laughs> but um, it's all about efficiency yeah that, that means it means that we can break problems down a bit more and it's it's interesting we bring in more perspectives and the episodes will be more sort of listenable for you guys yes um, before we get into it, as always, thank you to everyone who has reviewed us. Interestingly, on Spotify, first of all, we're just coming up to 1.5k followers. If you listen to the podcast or this is your first episode and you like it, please do follow on Spotify. Easiest way to see new episodes. We have 37 five-star ratings so Woo. far on the Spotify platform. And that's genuinely not from like manufacturing. We I don't haven't, know. We I haven't don't think we're solicited apart, no, we from, apart from on here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, apart from on here, which, you know, I suppose is, is genuine. So if you are enjoying it, do leave a review on Spotify. Uh, yeah. If you're on an iPhone, uh, leave a review on on, uh, on Apple Podcasts, that'd be really helpful. And if you enjoy it, share it with a friend. Honestly, it's it's the easiest way for it to grow. And, and I mean, and yeah, we're doing we're doing this really because we enjoy it. It's a passion project. It's fun. Um, yes, but yeah, we like to we like to debate things and we like to mm. you know do things that make you think. So yes, okay. So firstly, there's going to be three parts, like we said. First one, reasons to believe in God. So this will be looking at some of the classic philosophical arguments that people make as to why one should believe in God. The second part will be whether God is actually a useful thing. Yeah, whether religion uh, and God in particular has been good for society, yeah, yeah. beneficial. Yeah, the overall goods and bads. So like the concept of God, has that been a positive thing? And we'll kind of discuss some of the bads and goods and bring in some classic philosophical perspectives. And then finally, so I'm just trying to get the headline... Part three is about authority, ah, right? Yes, this part three will be interesting. Part three will be looking at justification for the moral authority of God. So there's some classic arguments in whether God exists or not. Why would it be a moral person mm. to listen to? Like, where, 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 does, where does his moral authority come from? So let's begin. Part one, reasons to believe in God. Okay, let's start off with a question of which God are we talking about? Yeah, it's always helpful to clarify this. I think lots of the arguments that we're going to look at are arguments that really rely on or, or entail quite a specific conception of God that I think is in reality very biased towards both our perspectives or, or our, our familiar concept of God and also um, I would say probably the conception that's most common to both our main listener base but mainly uh, the Abrahamic religions. Yeah, I, I, I was, right? I was I, I, is it true that that would basically make it the most common in the world? Uh, between Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Yeah, would that right? collectively encompass most conceptions of God? I think so, statistically. Um, I mean, the, the, there are the major way more. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. You so, know, I mean, you have Hinduism polytheistics, and... things like Hinduism. And then also, t- I mean, you have like 
conceptions of, of God and gods whereby they're not necessarily, even if it's monotheistic or not, or, you know, in many cases it's not, maybe the gods are, are kind of flawed or not all powerful, rather yeah. than just gods of, that have changed through time. I mean, you look at the Greek gods and they yep. were, they were sort of almost human in some of their flaws, right? Yeah, they exactly. They, they certainly proud were. and vengeful and jealous. Exactly. And, they were, they were actually the, the, the center of most of their pieces. But yes, we'll be focusing on a certain, a certain conception of God. Yeah. So for the most part, like you're saying, this will be the god of theism. And generally, there are like three characteristics that are given to this god. God is omniscient, which means all-knowing. Has a big white beard. <laughs> <laughs> Omnibenevolent, which is all-loving. And omnipotent, which means all-powerful. And it's funny, actually, uh, just in reference to that, because we've done an episode on the big guy with a beard in the sky before. Yeah. That was on Santa Claus. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but really, if you think about that. So not all of the arguments that give reasons to believe in God necessarily mean that we have to conceive of a God of this nature. But particularly in a Western context, if you asked a, you know, a random person in the US, like, describe God, you know, assuming that they're not like a total idiot who's, who would literally say, I don't know, a guy with a beard in the sky. You know, if they're going to give like some some specific traits of God, I think these are the kind of things that they would be pointing out. They this may, is- of course, describe Morgan Freeman from Bruce Willis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like a salt and pepper look between the hair and the beard. Um, but sorry, go on. The reason for that, I suppose, is because throughout Western philosophy, people have made a lot of appeals to debating religion and particularly God. And those are the things we're going to come to in a second. Yep. But yeah, there are plenty of arguments that try and prove that God exists and that therefore you should believe in him. They often seek to prove that God would be necessary. That is, if the argument withstands criticism, it would basically be impossible that God doesn't exist. So it's like a, an appeal to logic and reason to prove the existence of God. And importantly, I think certainly in this first one we'll discuss, which is the classic ontological argument, it really hinges on um, the specific definition that we gave earlier, omnipotent, particularly omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent. Just to give you a flavor of the kind of arguments that are coming up, we're gonna look at the ontological argument, Pascal's wager, the problem mm. of evil, that's quite a big one. Faith and reason, Kierkegaard, and I think... Oh, actually, we're leaving Nietzsche for next episode, aren't we? Mm. Or is Nietzsche in this one? Uh, I think Nietzsche's for next episode, yeah. Lovely. It, okay. More about the, the, the use of God. Yeah. Um, but let's start with the ontological argument. I really like this one, or at least I think it's quite fun. I, I think it's one of those things where, like, it kind of shows how you can... Are you familiar with rhetoric in the yeah. classical Greek sense? Mm-hmm. Rhetoric in ancient Greece was a bit like law today, right? Where it was like the art of winning arguments rather than the art of being right. Yeah, um, it's about framing in some respect, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we're going to talk through this ontological argument, and I think anyone with any sense is going to say, well, obviously that's bullshit. It's persuasive on the surface, but yeah, yeah, y- yeah. There's, there's a way to cut through it, right? Yeah. So anyway, it's potentially one of the best or, or worst arguments for the existence of God. It's ontological, so ontology meaning... Uh, a study of concepts like being and existence mm. so related to day ontology this is because the structure oh, wait, I actually never made that connection i can't say what the day adds to day ontology. <laughs> <laughs> i mean surely i mean if it's then related be. to being and connect and uh, existence and it sounds so similar this is because the structure of the argument relies on nothing from experience right basically we're saying this is an argument that's based purely on the definition of god not on some reliance on evidence of life that we've experienced. So for example, relying on actual evidence rather than definitional stuff would be saying something like, oh, look at the human eye, it's so complex. How could that not be designed? Yeah. Right? And obviously the answer to that is evolution. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like billions of years of, for, of, of uh, natural selection. So here's another ontological argument. All bachelors are single, right? I don't need to go out and check whether bachelors are single 
it's definitional. Yeah. Right? So what, what you're saying there is it's it's deductive rather than inductive, right? If you yes. if you were looking at evidence, developing that evidence into like a proof, you'd be you'd be making an inductive claim. But if it's deductive, you can just purely use logic based on the yeah. premises. Yeah. And in this case, the premise is the definition. Yeah. So, so another good example: all triangles are three sided. Yeah. Which, yeah. It's by definition of a triangle that statement is true. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So the ontological argument has various different conceptions. In its original conception by Anselm, it goes something like the following. One, God is defined as a being than which nothing greater can be conceived. The greatest of all beings. He's so great. Sounds like Trump. <laughs> it actually sounds like how Trump would market himself. I am the greatest of all beings. Nothing greater can be conceived. Two, if you agree, then you can think of God as the greatest being, at least in your mind. Three, there are two possibilities for any object. Either an object can exist only in the mind, or it can exist both in the mind and in reality. Four, if God only exists in the mind, then a greater God can be thought of, i.e. one that also exists in reality. Therefore, five, as God is the greatest being, he must exist in reality as well as in the mind. Right, okay. Um, so this <laughs> first appearance seems logically like appealing, right? But it seems that it's not possible for God to not exist in reality in addition to the mind. By definition, God would not be the greatest being if he didn't exist. And so God must exist when you accept this definition. However, okay, <laughs> um, basically he set out five steps there, right? Yeah. And so the obvious way to say that you don't agree with the, the conclusion is to specify which of the five steps you don't agree with, right? Mm -hmm. One is purely definitional, right? Like, yeah. so yeah, that's fine. Uh, two, if you agree, then you can think of God as the greatest being, at least in your mind. I don't agree. <laughs> <laughs> it's the premise number two is, do you agree that God exists? <laughs> so it's not really solved the problem. And then um, four, by the way, I mean, I, worth noting, these are arguments of, of God's existence. The overall topic is whether God's a good thing. We're just starting from the argument of existence. Yeah. The, the other one that I had an issue with reading through it was four. If God only exists in the mind, then a greater one can be thought of one that exists in reality. Why is existence in reality a trait of something that is greater than something that exists in the mind? Love exists in the mind. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, like, it, <laughs> I, that's, yeah, but you know, there are examples of that. I mean, my conception of self is something that only exists in my mind. How does the existence of something in, or say, for example, I can imagine the idea of, I don't know, a yellow chair. How is that greater than my conception of a yellow chair, right? It's potentially neutral, the difference. That's like, interesting. That wasn't an, a line of argument I thought you'd go now, but I take your point. Like, why does that make something greater? I suppose it's the, it's the argument that if you can think of this being that's all great and omnipotent and powerful, but it's only a figment of your imagination, he would be better if he exists. I know I've just sort of restated the premise. Yeah. But like, <laughs> but, um, but I mean, it doesn't, you don't really give a reason as to why, right? You know, let's take a different It's example. just taking the premise that imagine, imagine is better than non-existence. Yeah, ima imagine a perfect holiday and existing in your mind. Going on that perfect holiday okay. is better than yep. just imagining it, right? I might enjoy it more, but maybe the imaginary holiday is greater than the real holiday. Well, that's true. And, and this is yeah. one of the things that, you know, one of the arguments that we're given around God, like any God that existed, you could think of a way to make it better. And so it's not the best. Yeah. I mean, a really interesting uh, and, and probably the most famous criticism of this argument that kind of tears it down is to use an argument by analogy to say that this could be this method could be used to prove the existence of anything which is kind of what you're saying you're questioning the fact that exist is existence necessarily better than something imaginary but if you accept that as true 
you can take uh, this guy called Guanillo, mm-hmm. his argument. He said, imagine the perfect island, although in practice, you can imagine the perfect anything. Whatever mm-hmm. resonates with you, listeners. Imagine the perfect bottle of wine. Imagine perfect football match. Imagine whatever it is. <laughs> I see it. Charlton. <laughs> I was literally thinking Charlton's player fighting against Sunderland. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. But I don't think that's necessarily as relatable. Let's go okay. with the perfect bottle of wine. That's quite a fun one. Yeah. Or, you know, island, paradise, holiday, whatever. Sure. The perfect island, paradise, holiday, bottle of wine is one that of which no greater such thing can be conceived. It's the greatest. It's the best bottle of wine mm-hmm. ever. You can think that it exists at least in the mind because you can imagine it. It can either exist in the mind or exist in the mind and reality. Therefore, if it exists only in the mind, a greater one can be conceived of which also yeah. exists. I mean, you've basically just done control F, control H, God for exactly wine, island whatever exactly and it's really just hitting at the thing that i've said which is that the assumption that something existing versus not makes it better one and mm-hmm. two defining something as the, the best the best doesn't simply bring it into existence right like yeah i could imagine the perfect partner mm-hmm. right <laughs> like, just the ability to imagine that define them as as you know the best and then thinking well the best partner would exist and therefore they exist <laughs> therefore they must exist there yeah. must be somewhere <laughs> where are you <laughs> somewhere somewhere in my 500 hinge matches she, she's bound to be hiding nice flex <laughs> <laughs> no that's just classic that's classic match and never talk <laughs> yeah but it's true and i mean it's a, it's a great way to reduce the argument to something ridiculous yeah no it, um, it just it proves how it's one of those things that sounds logically appealing but you know, once you give it a little bit of deeper thought, you realize it's nonsense, which is why I made that reference to ancient Greek rhetoric. It's yeah. a lot of it is, is that kind of thing where like on the surface, it sounds logically appealing, but just takes a little bit of digging to realize all that's happened is you've just assumed a crappy premise. Yeah. So, I mean, a really good example of this is basically anything that Plato's written where Socrates said something ridiculous. And then because Plato's writing the book, he has the other person say, okay, we can take that as a premise. Yeah. And it's like, no, no, clearly that's an unreasonable premise. That's why we're building up a ridiculous argument. I don't think that's necessarily a terrible thing. A lot of their work, his work is like explorative, right? Mm. And, and some of these premises, you know, need to be allowed for a bit to come to interesting overall ideas. But the reason that they're not overall actually sound ideas is because we're accepting premises like that which yeah we shouldn't. And, and you can see strongly that this really relies on that sort of western theistic impression of god being yeah perfect or powerful this, and that's true because uh, yeah. linked to the ancient greeks their gods weren't necessarily that as we no, said no, they were no. flawed so yes and I, I, it's interesting like i think a lot of arguments discussion around god kind of certainly when you you doing these super logical ones and rational you kind of come to these paradoxes of you know these paradoxes around terms like omnipotent right Mm. it's the kind of classic like what happens when the unstoppable force hits the immovable object it is right right? it's it's a sort of definitional paradox yeah the the only thing it proves is that there probably is i'm saying probably i'm quite assured there is nothing that's omnipotent because definitionally it's hard (laughs) it's hard to achieve that yeah it sort of becomes more semantic doesn't it yeah Let's move on to the next argument. This is another fun one. I like this. Yeah. Uh, so this, so this is not Pascal's from wager, God, right? Yeah. yeah. Pascal's wager. Uh, and as you say, this works a little bit differently because the aim of the last God uh, argument was to say it, it was to prove that God must exist, whereas this one is more aimed at providing a reason that a person should believe in God. And to be fair, you could say proving the existence of God might no. therefore make people believe. Because like, well, he well, definitely yeah. exists. <laughs> yeah. Therefore, I believe in him. At like a high level, they both try to achieve the same thing they're just taking different routes right yeah pascal is persuasive whereas the other one is trying to be like 
well, it's just right. Yeah. Anyway, the argument here is is that it, it's a better bet. It's a wiser gamble to believe in God than not. And that's why it's called the wager. Yes. Uh, this is because the price of not believing in God, if he does not exist, is infinitely bad, i.e. an eternity in hell. If you believe in God, but he doesn't exist, then that's a finite loss. You've wasted some time in church and then you die and you don't even, you know, that's it. Like that, that's all you've lost. You know, maybe you've done some things differently, but it's not that bad a loss for you. And in fact, this is something we'll cover in the next episode. Maybe generally adhering to the idea that a God exists could even be a kind of good thing, mm-hmm. right? That it might be emotionally beneficial to you. And it also might be a general good moral guide. You know, mm-hmm. would I do that? Mm, there's a man in the sky watching me. But if you don't believe in God and he doesn't exist, then, you know, there's, there's a small finite gain. Maybe there's some things you would have done that otherwise you wouldn't have. Maybe you just saved the time that you spent in church. Most importantly, though, this is the the big one. If you do believe in God uh, and he does exist, there's an infinite gain. Uh, Big win. I know. Eternity in heaven. Thus, it is a better wager. It's basically saying, let me give an analogy. Well, it's like a game tree, right? And if you imagine Mm. in game theory, you've got two strands, believe in God, don't believe in God. And then you've got the next layer is God exists, God doesn't exist. Yeah. You can literally plot the paths. And the funny thing is, obviously, in one strand, you don't believe in God, but he does exist. Yeah. You've got an eternity in hell, and that's really bad. That's like minus infinity. Put it it like this. It's like if someone offers you a wager, Mm -hmm. and they say, hey, look, if you win then I'll give you 10 million pounds. Mm-hmm. If you lose, I'll kill you. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and the cost of the wager is one pound, mm-hmm. right? Most people would say you don't even need to know what the probabilities are. It's worth paying the one pound. Wait, why? Because the cost of the one pound is so small relative to either winning oh. 10 million or being killed. Sorry, right? you're saying you pay the pound not to take the... Not, no, not. no, 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 you take the... You take... You're not paying to be killed here, right? No, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> so you, if you give me a pound, there's a chance that you'll have... Um, you'll have 10 million. 10 million. If you don't, if give, you me don't pound, give me the pound, there's, there's a chance, a chance I'll kill you, yeah. right? Yeah. And the argument is basically, you don't know what the probabilities are, but it doesn't matter because the cost of one pound is so small yeah. relative to the potential benefit and potential gain. Yeah, that's true. That's, that's a good roughly, way of it's like framing it's, infinity. Yeah, it's, he's basically saying, I'd rather like care that I don't know the probabilities. I'd rather guarantee losing a pound. Yeah. Right, because because the, the if you pay the pound, the worst case scenario is you've lost a pound. It's true. It's, it's, true. it's actually basically an, an example of loss aversion. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Kahneman would love this. Yeah, and I think what's funny is I I presented this to people who are like really so people I consider really smart, and actually by and large people are like yeah actually this makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean when when you frame it the way that I've just said, right? Yeah, one pound to take a bet where you might win a thing, and if you don't uh, win ten million, and if you don't pay yeah. the pound, you might die. It. It sounds it, definitely in that analogy dauntingly I, compelling. Yeah, it's like, of course I'd pay a pound. Yeah, um, but, but I think let's let's take this apart because it falls apart yeah. in quite a lot of interesting ways. And mostly it falls apart definitionally because I mean, one, it's not necessarily a guarantee. Like faith is something we've kind of defined here, but there's a big argument that you don't wake up and just decide to bet on God. Yeah, or well, like, certainly certainly that's not true belief or yeah. you know some, does, some sort of argument. Does like God that. care about that? Like, is there any guarantee that God cares about you going to worship Him? Like, yes, that's. I mean, that's. I think the big thing is that and this is something that for example uh, no offense to to those listening i've always found about catholicism so mm. confusing or, or certainly about a lot of religious people this is something that we'll discuss but like it's very much the kind of arc of the covenant. going through no, no, no. <laughs> the art it's kind of the whole like going through the motions but not really understanding the point of the belief right the motions become quite sort of culturally entrenched um, yeah but but you're right like there's no yeah there seems it's, to be no sort of proof that that's the method needed to achieve well and uh, i mean more specifically this idea that like say for example catholics they're like as long as i confess my sins like you know you i'm good with god them, yeah. and it's like technically but like 
I think the point is that you should actually feel bad and, <laughs> and that you should try and avoid doing the sins. Yeah. Whereas some people kind of take it more the other way where it's like, no, 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 as long as I accept God and say and confess my sins, it's all good, right? You're kind of missing the point in between. And, you know, there's, there's kind of this sense of like, certainly the one that most people would make reasonably and will come to the whole idea of like the problem of evil or, or good and evil and all that. But like, it's kind of this sense of like, well, as long as I live as a good person, if God is great and, and kind and benevolent and I've lived a good life, you know, and I die and, I, and then I, I'm to find out that he exists, like surely a kind God would rather that I was, you know, a good person who wasn't sure whether to believe rather than someone who, you know, went through the motions, but yeah, w- was basically taking a bet and like yeah. didn't, didn't actually care, had no faith. And that's the big thing, isn't it? That's, uh, that, that's the major criticism of Pascal is that God wouldn't necessarily like, why, yeah, why, why would God necessarily approve of you just being so calculating? Yeah. 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 And this, again, it's going to be a big theme in the next episode, I think, the difference between, uh, and it's similar to laws, like understanding laws as writ mm. or understanding laws as intended, mm. right? Mm. Uh, I, the classic analogy. The letter that, or the spirit. Yeah, right? this is, uh, I think the classic analogy, and this really annoys me, is when like, to, to give a couple examples, it's when you have Catholic teenagers who have anal sex. <laughs> like, it, it's like, I personally don't agree with the idea of abstinence, but if you're espousing abstinence, then, uh, but you're having anal sex to get around the rules, like, I think you're missing the point. Um, and then, you know, another, another example, uh, like, is like Muslim friends of mine who are like, can't drink, that's haram, but smoke weed. And, yeah. and again, it's like, you know, uh, like, I think you are missing the point of the thing that you're uh, yeah, espousing. Well, yeah, presumably the idea is that yeah. drugs cloud your judgment, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so like, okay, fine. Maybe they didn't have the foresight to include that in the list of things at the time of writing the biblical mm-hmm. texts uh, or the religious texts. But like, clearly, you're missing the spirit of this thing. Yeah. Um, so that was Pascal's wager. That's quite a fun one. Now yeah. we come on to quite a heavy one. Yeah, uh, which this, is the this problem is actually of evil. The inverse. So the other two were reasons to believe in God, and yeah. this is a classical reason not to believe in God. Exactly. So the problem of evil was actually first put forward by. Epicurus. Something along the lines of basically definitional again, like, okay, if God is omnipotent and omnibenevolent, then, you know, either he chooses to allow evil, in which case he's not, you know, all, he's not all loving, yeah. um, or he can't stop evil existing, which means he's not omnibenevolent. Omnip- omnipotent. Right? Omnipotent, sorry. Yeah. Um, the only problem with that argument is that, like, that would disprove his omnipotence or omnibenevolence that doesn't disprove his existence or whether we should worship him. Like worship of him is is not necessarily conditional on those two definitional points being correct, right? But anyway, we'll we'll talk through the the whole argument. It's an interesting point though, isn't it? Because I think it's as we said at the beginning, those are the three premises that are standardly accepted for the definition of God. Like he's all loving, he's all powerful and he's all knowing. But as you say, I mean, if, if evil exists... He's either not all loving yeah. or he can't stop it, in which case yeah. he's not all powerful. Oh, yeah. So we kind of jumped in and said, oh, Epicurus puts this forward, blah, blah, blah. To spell it out, basically, the problem of evil is evil exists. How is that compatible with the existence of God? Is that proof that God yes. doesn't exist? And like we said, this is largely con- you know, contingent on an understanding of God that is reliant on these definitional terms. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it's also, I mean, it seems to be a strong case. Uh, and there's, uh, there's lots of people who basically kind of pick up on this as their main reason for not being religious. There's a nice quote from the Brothers Karamazov. Oh, yeah. So read. there's a Brothers Karamazov is a book by Dostoevsky, which is both like a novel and somewhat philosophical. But, quite philosophical i think like quite a few philosophers like put like name it as one of their favorite books and most um, influential books and basically there are brothers who represent a spectrum of there's three brothers that represent a spectrum of the religious beliefs like one is a priest (laughs) so belief one is a member of the intellectual elite 
who writes a, an essay criticizing the belief in God quite famously. And the third one is someone who kind of intuitively believes in God, but is still a bit of a sensualist and, you know, commits sins, uh, sins of lust. And, and hmm. the whole, actually the whole book is about whether or not he committed a murder. That we can kind of see him as the kind of, we see the two younger brothers as these ideals. Mm. And we see the third one more as like our, ourselves. The human. The, yeah. the, the real human, right? Mm -hmm. But the point is that the younger brother is a priest and the middle brother who's the intellectual have an argument. And basically the this, you know, he brings forward this problem of evil argument and actually refers to genuine accounts. Uh, Dostoevsky used actual accounts from actual newspapers of children being raped and mm. uh, tortured by adults, etc. And kind of puts forward like basically the, the problem of evil, but then kind of takes it a step further and says, actually, even if God exists, if this is the world that he considers to be acceptable, I actually want nothing to do with him. So the, mm. the actual quote is, uh, it's not that I don't accept God. I just most respectfully return him the ticket. <laughs> uh, like I, I want no part in heaven created by a man who allows this. Or sorry, that was that was sexist. Uh, he or a, she? He or she? They? Why well, would be genderless? Women <laughs> That's kind of a common Western conception of, uh, of the problem. Certainly, the famous case of it. It's a powerful argument, right? And I mean, you, you you've listed some examples of evil there, and there are plenty other things anyone can point to in their own lives of stuff that. Yeah. Stuff that seems to go wrong and affect sort of innocent people. It doesn't even seem to be particularly karmic, right? It's not mm. like someone does something bad and they get punished. It's yeah. like kids are born with horrible birth defects. Yeah. Or yeah, like, yeah. you know, my, my mum used to volunteer at Great Ormond Street Hospital, which is one of the big ones in London where kids mm. with like really challenging special diseases go and they, they've got like expert help. But there's some stuff you see. It's like, yeah, my God, this is yep. really yep. like, yeah. So, so overall, basically this argument would say, logically, if evil exists, Maybe we can't accept that God is, you know, as defined, omnipotent, omnipotent, omniscient. However, we can also then take it that little step further where we say, not only might God not exist, but if God exists, maybe the form that he's in doesn't merit worship, which is that, that kind of argument of the, the guy from Brothers Karamazov. So how do people kind of generally address this? Yeah, it's quite a big challenge to religions in general, right? Or theistic thinkers. Yep. So an appeal that some people will make will be to human free will as a way of kind of reconciling the existence of evil and the existence of God. It was originally put forward by Leibniz, but it's also argued by Plantinga. Quickly before we go into that, I feel like this is another one where like actually the premise is wrong, right? Because whilst the conception of human free will fits well into the Abrahamic mm -hmm. like tradition of gods and human, it suits the story of Garden of Eden. Right. Yeah. And um, it suits the story yeah. of is it is it uh, Abraham and his son where God's like sacrifice him and he's like Okay, and then actually okay. no, that's sorry, completely no, that, a different, that's point. A different, that's a different point. Sorry, that's, I realize I'm. Yeah, 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 that's actually a good example. Of, that's a good <laughs> example of doing exactly what God tells you. It doesn't um, make it more. And God seems to like that. So yeah, interesting. Um, but yeah, so no, no, I'm just saying. Oh, they carve out this like oh, but it's because of human free will, right? Yeah, um, original sin. Well, I'm kind of like, well, yeah, okay, you've specified the thing, but that still means he's not omnipotent. You've just specified a way in which he's not omnipotent or chooses not to be omnipotent. Like it doesn't really solve the problem. Like it's a bit like saying, I don't know, if my toddler's doing something crappy, you know, it's a bit like saying, oh, but he's a, you know, he's a toddler and he doesn't know better or whatever. And it's like, well, yes, but you're an adult and that doesn't absolve you from then like <laughs> stopping your toddler doing crappy things, right? Yeah. It sort of seems to cast God more in the role of like a game designer. Yeah. Like he's sort of yeah, yeah, designed the world and sort of just set things in motion and been like, cool, you, you, you guys do you. Yeah. But uh, anyway, sorry. Uh, to, to carry on with the actual response, the, uh, based on that Leibniz put toward with hum, uh, human free will, basic response is that because we have free will and God thought that giving us free will would be a good thing, 
This means that humans sometimes make mistakes and choose evil. It is thus the product of humans having free will, which means that evil exists in the world. For it is better that humans have free will, and there be some evil, as a product of them sometimes choosing to do bad things, than humans not being free. Which certainly fits the religious original sin kind of thing, right? It certainly might work for some of the big problems. It seems plausible to think that human free will might, after all, be responsible for things like war, things like poverty. It's the way we've sort of designed societal systems. This might even have the upshot of explaining some natural evils, but I, I find it harder to see this. Well, I, I, actually, this one links. Uh, for example, quote, the intensity, frequency, and duration of North Atlantic hurricanes have all increased since the 80s, and that seems to be a result of global warming. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, things like volcanic eruptions, stuff like that, earthquakes. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't explain no, those. Yeah. People being born with terrible diseases, like you said. And kind of like I mentioned, it, yeah, it might solve the logical problem of evil, uh, the inconsistency between the divine attributes of God and the presence of evil, but it doesn't really solve the problem that th there is a bunch of evil and he's not doing anything about it, mm. right? Yeah, there's a guy called Rao who has a good example of this, which is that if we imagine that there is a deer in the forest who dies a slow and painful death as a result of a forest fire, which is sad, and no one ever finds this deer, it seems to be a case of complete unnecessary evil in the world. Yeah, sad image. Yeah, yeah, and there are plenty of instances like that. The point about the evidential problem of evil is that if there has to be some evil in the world in order for humans to have free will, then that doesn't explain all instances of evil. Oh, that's a slightly different point, actually, to the one I was making, whereby, you know, just because you, like, descriptively explained why it exists, that doesn't explain why God wouldn't step in and change it. Mm. But no, okay, so this is actually the argument that some of it is explained, but not all of it. Some of it is still unnecessary. Mm -hmm. That's your argument around volcanoes, yeah. children with terrible diseases, which just aren't the result of free will. Yeah, it both does not seem the case that this kind of suffering is a product of human free will or is necessary in order that humans have free will. So, like, yeah, there's still unexplained evil. That's exactly yeah, what you're yeah, saying. Yeah. Uh, and then even then, like I said, the free will evil, you know, like there's a balance. Like, is that really worth it? Um, also, uh, one other conception, perhaps to the benefit of this. Okay, humans are relativistic creatures, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe, the you know, we could see an argument that this is twofold. One, if humans are relativistic, Maybe no matter how perfect the, girl, God, the world God made for us was, we would see some evil in it. But really, actually, it wouldn't be that evil on the scale of evil. It's just that we're seeing things relativistically. Mm. But then you can also make the God argument that, like, if God is omnipotent, uh, omnibenevolent, why does he give us the capacity to, well, like, why does he make us relativistic so that we necessarily see evil? Yeah. As, as one. <laughs> cool. Um, and then I think another point that's interesting... Just went away from my head. There's this one here is that God uh, could make us so that we have free will, but we can always freely choose only the good, which actually I think yeah. that seems to be an oxymoron because it's like it's not you free have free will. will, but you can only choose good things. Yeah. Which in, in the game designer sort of conception yeah. doesn't seem impossible. Well, I mean, we have free will, but also have instilled naturally a strong sense of morality. So mm -hmm. that maybe that's not that far off how we actually are made. Maybe that definition, I think the thing there is it wouldn't make us significantly free. And that's a quote from Plantinga. So. Another classic argument would be like, okay, we perceive evil, but you know, the, the whole God works in mysterious ways argument. And it's just that we don't have the omniscience to see far enough into the future how yes. this is a necessary evil to achieve some good in the mid to long term. Yeah, that's, so, a, that's a classic uh, quote of religion, right? God yeah. works in mysterious ways to, yeah. to explain the fact that you might not see or understand <laughs> the reason for something now. Exactly. But. And then, and then you know, certainly the, the most religiously devout will try and find the good in anything as an explanation for why God did that horrible thing to them. You know, God put this challenge before me to make me a better person. And mm. actually that was necessary for me to achieve X, Y, Z later in my life. Yeah. And I mean, to be fair, that can be a really positive way of living your life in some respect because it, it yeah. sort of forces you to be well, optimistic, but you don't need God. No, that's, <laughs> it, it's one of those things where, again, coming to it, to it in the next episode, 
you know, maybe a good reason for the existence of God, a quote unquote God, so not him literally existing, but him as a concept existing in our society, is that it does encourage people to think that way. Mm -hmm. And it's generally beneficial for people to think that way. But as you say, it's not necessary for that to be the reason. Like, you could also just have like a humanistic understanding that like, okay, crappy things happen in life. Being stoic is like the only way of dealing with it. And in the long run, that's better. Change the things you can't accept. Accept the things you cannot change. Rock and roll. (laughs) (laughs) That's the problem of evil. The next key point is faith versus reason. So with all the arguments above, they suppose that there's an incompatibility between like the success of the arguments we've made and and the concept of faith, which we Mm. haven't really talked about yet. Yeah. Whether these arguments are successful or not, my only matter of this can actually have an impact on whether people choose to believe as a product of those arguments or not. But it does not seem that this is really the case. Even if you think that the ontological argument is really good and can hold up, this might still not mean that you then actually come to believe it. So this is, I mean, basically the conception of faith, and this is what we're saying, like truly believing versus making a bet in the case Mm -hmm. of Pascal's wager, are kind of ethically, morally, maybe religiously distinct, right? Yeah. And and to be fair, I'm just going to say my personal opinion. I'm not personally particularly religious, uh, which is why I find the conception of God quite interesting. Both like, you know, arguments around should you believe, does it does it exist, etc. But then also a lot of political and, and moral arguments about it as a concept uh, and its effect on society. I find faith interesting because it's quite a double-edged sword. Like, mm. on the one hand, I kind of understand that like the point is believing in something without evidence but then you know take take that argument out of out of a religious context and it sounds ridiculous right yeah it really does normally we base our beliefs on evidence or or, or some reasonable understanding of the why but the whole challenge of of religion is that you're supposed to believe without that (laughs) ours is not to question why (laughs) yeah exactly exactly which like it's both the romantic appeal and also the thing that makes it so utterly uninviting (laughs) well it makes it frustrating because i think uh, and i've seen really interesting debates like dawkins versus um i forget his name but there's a a big sort of theological scholar at oxford and they've had really interesting arguments on this and it it does ultimately come down to faith versus reason and you've got dawkins basically saying like you know tearing down arguments logically it's, 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 it's like here's all the reasons you shouldn't and then the other the person's answer is i don't use reason yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's um, basically like yeah this debate is yeah. like it's, it's, it's blocked bit, it's a bit yeah exactly it's a this is the interesting thing about like people who do have faith it's a bit like arguing about morality with a moral nihilist right mm. like your original premise means that it's impossible to have a discussion yeah. right so if you're arguing is this right or wrong and their argument is nothing is right or wrong there's no further discussion to be had yeah right yeah that's i mean unless that person is willing to debate their premise Mm -hmm. but but the problem is their very premise is that they don't agree with the method of disagreeing with their premise yeah which means you're trapped yeah it's it's a bit like i don't mean to draw this analogy as as, as a source of offense to people who are religious but it's a bit like arguing with a conspiracy theorist right because (laughs) it really isn't because because the logic is some elements of the logic are circular right so anything, any reason to not believe in the conspiracy theory tends to be reinforcing because it's like, well, that's what they want you to think. Literally right? that, exactly that. It's, uh, I mean, we've joked about the lizard people before on this podcast and you can just sort of point to any evidence that they don't exist or, or any evidence yeah. of ridiculousness. And, it's and like, they would be like, well, that's just evidence that's been created or manufactured yeah. in order to stop you believing in this. And then yeah. if, you hold, if you hold that premise, they've effectively disarmed the only way of fighting. And so this kind of brings us to, to Kierkegaard 
uh, famous Danish philosopher's conception of faith. It seems to be that I, basically his conception of faith is beyond reason because it's constructed as individual passion. Mm. Uh, if faith is deeply personal and a solo project, then it seems that reason and, and these arguments that we're putting forward can't really impact faith. That's the nature of it, mm -hmm. right? This is what we're saying. If you take this view, then no matter how good you think the arguments we just talked about are, it doesn't really matter, right? You have faith or you don't have faith. Mm. What I find interesting, because I, I definitely remember like religious figures at like my school growing up and stuff talking about like, oh, you know, I found God, I had like a moment of experience. And I think to be fair, that could just be the kind of moments you experience like when you, you're in nature or something, you know, you, mm. like, what's the maybe, word? As in, maybe it's semantically different understanding of a similar experience to what you've had. Yeah, as in like you have moments of profundity where oh, it's like, I, I know this, it's, um, there's, there is a term for this. Yeah. The sublime. The sublime. Thank you. That's exactly it. And I think, you know, anyone is capable of sort of experiencing sublime in different ways. And I think if you're brought up in a religious paradigm, you're like, whoa, God, was that you? Yeah, that's your way of understanding. <laughs> and right? and that becomes your way of understanding it. Exactly. And then yeah. that reinforces your faith because that actually, and what's interesting and what's ironic, I suppose, about that reinforcing your faith is that's evidence, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which is supposed to be unnecessary for faith. But it's, it's amazing. I think it's probably quite human to, to want to fall back on evidence to look for proof. And I mean, that's yeah. why we spent an entire episode discussing yeah. it. But Okay. It's a quick one. Yeah. Because uh, this is the conclusion of part one. Yes. Do you believe in the existence of God? Uh, or is that too big a question to publicly? Uh, no, no, no. I, 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 on the, on the I, scale, I on the scale of, on the, well, but let's be more specific. On the scale of definitely exists to definitely doesn't exist. Ag uh, to definitely doesn't exist with agnostic in the middle. Yeah. With agnostic being, it's not a knowable thing, and I don't feel strongly. That's uh, that's a good distinction to make because actually, I think there's less evidence for God's existence than there is evidence of it. But I think the most rational position to hold is to say you probably can't know. But to be fair, sometimes I wonder why we have the word agnostic, right? Because I think most atheists hold the position that like, if there was good evidence that was brought to light, I'd change my mind. Yeah. Um, it's, it's Russell's teapot like, actually, isn't it? Yeah. We, yeah. And we haven't talked about that here and that's probably, uh, I don't think it's coming up. So maybe just mention that quickly. Bertrand Russell says famously, imagine a teapot that's sort of floating around the rings of Saturn. Yes. And he's like, he could just say that exists. And he's like, no, the burden of proof should be such that if I make a claim like that, that's quite <laughs> fanciful and i don't really have evidence for it the burden should be on me to provide evidence that exists there's no reason for you to believe it yes just so because is, like take my word for it so this is a criticism like god is a deeply historically uh, culturally embedded concept right mm -hmm. and so the problem is that the method of or, or, or the the structure of arguments about god too often take a form where people are having to argue with religious establishment as to why God doesn't exist, right? Mm -hmm. And so the point Bertrand Russell is making is that actually, yeah, the, 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 like, the, the burden should be the other way around. And just because we've inherited cultural artifacts doesn't mean that, or not literal metaphorical artifacts, uh, doesn't mean that that burden is suddenly reversed. Because yeah, yeah. he gives the analogy of a, a teapot going around Saturn and, you know, he says, prove that it's wrong. Yeah, <laughs> it should be like, no, prove that it's right. But yeah. I, it's true. And, and saying you inherited cultural artifacts is actually a really interesting way of formulating it. Because to be honest, that probably is a big explanation. You, you go back in mm. time, you look at earlier humans, and there must have been so much that was mm. unexplained about the world. And it yep. probably becomes simple or convenient yeah. to, to sort well, of say, wow, there's, I mean, there's something powerful out there, powerful yeah. beyond our sort of powers and understanding. And yeah. Thus, the concept of God probably evolves and it's, it's sticks around. Yeah. I think one of the things that's really cool is like, when you think about the anthropological history mm. of religion, right? There's two really interesting facts that kind of seem counter, right? Mm -hmm. One is that pretty much all societies seem to worship gods, mm -hmm. God, God slash gods, right? 
um, which seems to be some sort of argument in the favor of like a faithful person would make the argument like clearly this this is some evidence that there's something out there uh, an evolutionary or, or by a biological or anthropological perspective might be like okay no humans just have this proclivity towards that belief that doesn't mm. make that belief true and then you know following that second strand the thing that you might use as evidence against it is yes all societies seem to have this proclivity towards believing in god they simultaneously you know all have different gods which yeah. seems to, which, and, and all feel like they're in touch with this this being who's teaching them or whatever and actually the fact that they all come to different conclusions seems to be evidence that actually there is no objective reality that's communicating with them because otherwise mm. you would expect everyone to come to similar conclusions yeah, why, why would consistency yeah why would why would a real god be conveying itself differently to different yeah. societal groups well i'm very glad we've ended on the anthropological explanation because generally they're my favorite yeah <laughs> it's it's so funny when i remember like i said i was uh, i think i mentioned before i was reading a political theory book and it was so funny in the introduction to read a kind of anthropological biological perspective on like morality and, mm. and, and society uh, where it was just like Oh yeah, this just seems to be something that like seems to benefit this group of animals. Yeah. <laughs> so, they, so they just seem to have a feeling for it. And morality is cooperation. Like, exactly. Where, whereas like we what's it? Yeah, we think of it as like this deep, like objective thing that exists outside of people. Mm. And then biologists are like, nah, like they just seem to have this drive towards feeling that for some reason. It, it's probably <laughs> evolutionary advantageous. Probably helps them survive. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. it helps them cooperate. because <laughs> um, our cells got kicked out of the tribe. It, basically, and, yeah. yeah. And so it's so interesting when you think about it anthropologically. Yeah, overall, I'd say I'm, I'm quite similar to you. Maybe I, I probably should have just read, but I don't really understand the the significant difference between agnostic and atheistic. I think atheist just takes a stronger position. Atheism is basically just like, there is no God. It takes a firm position that God doesn't exist, yeah. whereas agnostic just sits in the middle and says, yeah. meh, meh, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe it does. Maybe, maybe it I am an atheist, but I just don't want that to be misunderstood as I wouldn't change my mind given reasonable evidence. That's, yeah, that's possibly how I feel too. I think that's yeah. it, right? Like I, I, an agnosticism seems to be therefore a really reasonable position to take because you are, you're, it sounds more open-minded. Atheists seem more sort of finite in their view but i'm sure there are atheists who would disagree with that or just say hey give me good evidence and i change my mind so and that's a good place to wrap up thank you guys we'll be back literally next week because we'll release them sequentially week by week with part two where we're going to look at good and bad of religion was religion has it been net beneficial to society cheers